0: This is Oren Herskowitz, Executive Director of Columbia Technology Ventures. Today I'll be talking to Dr. Andrea Califano of Columbia University Irving Medical Center. It's a great discussion. He talks about what systems biology actually means and why it's a fundamental change in the understanding of the human body. About why his work at Columbia and in his startup, Darwin Health, targets the body's what he calls master regulators, which he describes as being the generals, not the soldiers, in cancer's war on your health. What it was like launching his startup Darwin Health in New York City, and how the culture of entrepreneurship has changed at Columbia during his time here. How he and his co-founder got Darwin Health to become revenue positive within six months of launching, without raising any venture capital funding. And how Darwin is now working with big biopharma to identify known but overlooked compounds that might impact on cancer in surprising ways. Dr. Calopano, thank you so much for joining me today for this. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Art. Um, Before we jump in, I wanted to cover your titles. So you are the chair of Columbia's Department of Systems Biology, but also the director of the J.P. Sulzberger Columbia Genome Center. So let's start with the first one, and let's start with the first part of the first one. What is systems biology? I hear about this a lot. I have to admit I'm not sure I fully understand the definition. So how do you describe systems biology?
1: So you know in, in almost all the sciences have gone through a, a, a period that's been called the Golden Age, right? And the golden age of the science has been when the empirical base, the experimental base of the science, right. so think about a physicist rolling down a bowl on an incline and measuring you know the, the speed of the ball at any point in time, has been met by the ability to analytically predict, create models that can analytically predict what the ball will do. So you don't longer have to do an experiment. you can simply, uh, writing on a piece of paper and you can get the solution without having to do the experiment. What, what is happening in biology is that, you know, because the problem is so complex, you know, there's literally, you know, a million different protein isoform in the cell, 20,000 genes, et cetera. Um, the problem is much more complex. And so what is happening right now is that the, I think the golden age of biology is because now we're able to create models, analytical models, that can predict what a cell will do in response, for instance, to a drug or because a certain mutation accumulates uh, in, in a tumor. So so that, so that systems biology is about studying the, the, the cell, the human cell, or in fact, uh, systems of interacting cells, not one thing at a time. Like you could, for instance, could do, if you go down the 20,000 gene list, you could say, okay, is this gene mutated? Is this gene mutated? Rather than doing that and doing things one thing at a time, we try to figure out how things work together. Like Essentially think of it as, being the, a watch, you know, the mechanism inside a watch. All these different gears and, 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 and levers are connected together and same thing in the cell. And what we're trying to do is to understand how that mechanism is, the global mechanism is
0: implemented. And so the system in systems biology refers to the All cell. these things working together. Not the whole body, but a no, no, within system, a cell.
1: the system refers to all these things working together. It could be in a cell. It could be two different cells commun- communicating. It could be an organ communicating with another organ. Mm. So it's just a matter of not looking at things
0: one at a time. Right. And why? I mean, as a layperson, yeah. as you know, I'm not a scientist. As a layperson, when I think of that, it sounds sort of blindingly obvious why that would be better. And yet, my understanding is this is a relatively new discipline, and it's not even necessarily the way it's done universally across the board by everybody. And so um, what's the opposite of systems biology? Like
1: the opposite biology is what goes on pretty much in all the labs around the world that are not systems biology lab, which is the vast majority. Which basically, for, let me give an example. One thing that people do is they take snapshot of the cell at the molecular level using a technology that's called RNA sequencing. So the you know the, the DNA is the book of instruction inside the cell. It's 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 basically a static molecule; it doesn't change over time. Well, you can mutate it, but you know, in general it stays pretty much the same across the, across the entire lifetime of the individual. The DNA tells the, the cell to make things through another molecule called RNA. And the RNA is very nice because you can actually measure it very inexpensively. We can now do genome-wide, the whole all 20,000 genes for about $11 per sample, hmm. okay? And, and, and so this allows us to understand which genes are being expressed so that they produce the corresponding protein, which genes are not. Now the, the the problem with the way this data is typically analyzed is by going one gene at a time and asking is this gene overexpressed is this gene underexpressed did you and so if you find an interesting gene that is overexpressed and you say oh my god this may be an interesting target that doesn't work very well and the problem is that until very for instance we our lab was the first one that created a blueprint of the transcriptional regulatory machine of the cell that is how protein control the expression of the genes. Mm. And before that, you know, you, you simply didn't have it for the human cell, right? So it, it's, a, it's a recent uh, discipline simply because the kind of data that is necessary to create the blueprints that you actually need
0: to think of the cell as a, as a wash uh, simply didn't exist before 2000. Uh, and so it's literally the, the tool set that allows this whole field to flourish. It's, it's two it, things.
1: is the ability to now for instance, think about it uh, gene expression microarrays were introduced in 1998, I believe. Uh, in fact, we were on the very first paper uh, with the Broad, with what is now the Broad Institute, used to be the the, the MIT Genome Center. Um, and so, it's very, it, it's only in the last 20 years that we've been able to measure the expression of the genes in the cell mm. in genome-wide fashion. Before, you had to do PCR on one gene at a time, uh, super expensive, impossible to do for 20,000 genes. Um, so over this not only now we have the ability to generate this uh, very large vast amount of data that tells exactly what's going on up and down in the cell but also we have supercomputers that can now process that information with the required speed to be able to put together these models so we have one of the largest supercomputers that is dedicated to uh, you know a, a research center uh, in the basement of this building mm. and we are using it essentially 100% of the time to create and interrogate these
0: models so the how many Graduate students, do you typically have in your lab at any given time? Maybe on average, about eight. Eight. Okay. Yeah.
1: And and kind of you know maybe six that are PhD students and, and two to four depending on the time that are MD PhDs.
0: Okay. And of those, how many of them sort of come from the like wet biology side of things, and how many of them are, are computer science, essentially computer science? So when I started the lab in uh, in two thousand and three at Columbia, they were one hundred percent
1: computational, and now they're about 50 hmm. because. What well, we Capital well, appreciate, and the reason actually I moved from IBM Research where I was before, um, I was directing the, the IBM Computational Biology Center, there. it was a very large operation. Uh, but the, but the, the constraint was I could only do computational research. And I realized that um, you, you have to be able to generate your own data and generate your own validation, because otherwise you have to find somebody who's willing to work with you to validate your hypothesis, and that's a rare, you know, a rare finding. And so I came to Colombia specifically with the, with the objective of opening my own wet lab, and it took me about four years uh, to actually get any results that was even publishable, because it's not an easy thing to do, um, and, but, but it worked out really well, and now we have about 50% of the lab. The lab is somewhere between 25 and 30 people, depending on the day of the week, um, and so about half of them are, in, are wet lab people and half of them are
0: competition. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a lot of our guests that we've spoken to so far on the on the podcast talk about the interdisciplinarity of, of a place like Columbia. How great it is that people from the engineering school can be you know, computer scientists from the computer science department or department of biomedical informatics can be collaborating with uh, biologists or chemists. Um, and it sounds like in some ways your lab is its own interdisciplinary center. Like. You, uh, Yes and no. So first of all, to be
1: a macrocosm of interdisciplinarity, you need to have imported that, and so we've done that through collaborations. And so we have, we have we just counted it about sixty collaboration just with people outside of Colombia, cool. so let alone with people inside of Colombia. And and so and so you know, think about it: you know, thirty students, each one working about three projects. Uh, and, and almost every project that we have, 90% of our publication are, 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 um, are, are with the, um, you know, people outside of our lab. Um, and so it, it really creates the opportunity for learning a lot of things that are then important in the lab. So for instance, I didn't know how to do CRISPR screens. Now we have huge operation on doing CRISPR screens with, with Mikko Turunen, came from Finland. Um, and uh, uh, for instance, uh, uh, Alejandro Chavez has been absolutely instrumental right. uh, in, in in giving us the opportunity to the point that now we have co-developed new plasmids that have been deposited at Addgene and have been used by, by you know, essentially uh, requested by more than three hundred labs. So so you start from you start with a perspective where instead of sort of looking at experimentation as just being essentially trial and error, as being something that is driven by a, a computational hypothesis. And all of a sudden, the ability to do experiments that are likely to produce the right results increases tenfold. Mm. Just to give you an example, the validation rate of the prediction that are now coming from the supercomputer predictions is around 70 to 80%. That means that 70 to 80 times out of 100 experiments you do produce the results that you would expect.
0: That's amazing. That is amazing. So it sounds like a lot of your work then has been enabled by Tools and techniques that simply didn't exist 20 or 30 That's years right. ago. I mean, even we we're just talking about the CRISPR, the CRISPR screens. Um, do you anticipate? Uh, you know, again, we hear about this being the age of the flourishing of biological sciences, like the, that we just we know so much more than we used to know, and the rate of that learning has accelerated. Do you think this is sustainable? Like, do you feel like the the, the pace of change within the underlying tools and techniques that you use is likely to keep growing and evolving and changing this fast?
1: You know, it's been a little bit like peeling an onion in the sense that, you know, if you remember about 40 years ago with the hypothesis of the uh, onco, uh, onco, uh, viruses, you know, which is basically what um, Harold Varmus and others got the Nobel Prize for, you know, we thought that maybe we understood how cancer originates, uh, you know, and, and, then the, and then the introduction of the oncogenes as a result of that. And then you know all of a sudden you discover that there's an entirely more complex piece of machinery and when you look at that you say oh finally i i have the tools to do and understand how the machinery works and now you realize that there's another layer complexity that comes from the heterogeneity and and then you you know and then the epigenetics of the cell and so you you it's literally like killing an onion where you, you take off one layer and you say aha now I finally understand the problem and now the next layer is harder than the previous one. So I think we're starting to reach the point where we, you know, it's gonna be difficult to go even finer grain than what we can do today because we can actually get data at the level of single cells. We can really dissect tumors and not only tumors but other human diseases to the point that we understand the communication between all the different cellular population and how they interact with each other. For instance, immunology uh, and cancer has been an obvious uh, you know, wake up call for everybody. Um, so I think that we're reaching the point where there may be some, uh, some increased success in terms of improving what we have. It's going to be difficult to go down to the level, for instance, of the organelles or the spatial localization within cells. Already with the spatial transcriptomics, we can do some of that. So this, I think there's going to be significant incremental uh, increase in the technology, but I don't know that there's going to be... The kind of breakthrough technologies like like CRISPRs, like you know that that we've had so far, because those have been uh, really
0: groundbreaking in terms of allowing an entirely new uh, set of things that you couldn't mm. do before. Right? So, so there's time left that sort of even just the the things that that allows to explore all of those is probably the focus for the next. Well, five I mean, to 10 years. I would say
1: look at it this way. You know, think of it in terms of the microprocessors, right? So, so in the microprocessor space, there have been novel invention and, and, and ways to. Uh, put together things that were more and more complex, but in the last few years, you know, the, the, the one exception being quantum computing, that mm-hmm. is now the coming of age. But in the last maybe ten years, there's been essentially a linear increase uh, in in, uh, in in processing power that has come from better engineering, not necessarily from absolutely breakthrough novel technologies. I think with biology, we're starting to approach that level. I mean, now, there's always going to be an exception. There's always going to be some some technology that is going to be absolutely groundbreaking and, and, and a breakthrough. But I'm just saying, what we have today, if you simply continue at on the, on the pace of making it better and better, it's gonna give us the data that we need to
0: understand biology to the most intimate level. Mm. I wanna come back to that, to the question of what do we do with all this information and that knowledge? Okay. But first, before I do, I said I wanted to come back to your second title, which is <laughs> you are also the director of the uh, of the Columbia Genome Center. Yeah. So what does that mean?
1: So, so genome centers, started with the mission of sequencing the human genome. Okay? And there were major centers at Sanger Center, uh, what what then became the Broad Institute, so the MIT Genome Center, et cetera, um, uh, WashU, and so forth. That mission has become obsolete because now, as I said, the technology incremental is becoming so much better. You can do, you know, $1,000. $1,000 genome was a a goal. Now it's only a reality. We can probably do some $1,000 genomes. Um, And so sequencing the DNA is no longer the core mission, it's more like a commoditized mission of genome centers. And so genome centers have become much more polyedric and, 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 and pleiotropic in what they do. Because what we've discovered is that by sequencing we can address a lot of different problems that we didn't even know we could do. But for instance, you can sequence RNA, obviously that's a major component of what we do. You can couple the sequencing with the generation of novel data. For instance, single cell sequencing, you couple novel technology for single cell profiling to generate the libraries to then sequence them. And so this tight connection between the genome center which does the profiling and the high-tech, if you want, component of the core that does the single cell profiling becomes very important. We can do things, for instance, you know, we have developed a technology here called Plate Seek with the uh, uh, with uh, Peter Sims and Plate Six allows us to do RNA sequencing for eleven dollars per sample, when you know RNA sequencing typically costs hundred and fifty dollars per sample. So it's a breakthrough technology, and only the tight integration yeah. of the uh, attribute Screening Center with the uh, with the genomic core has allowed us to do that. So there, are, so I think that there's a and now with CRISPR and perturbational profile. So we've now been able to come in the genome center. to to generate 20,000 profiles of cells that have been perturbed with all FDA approved and experimental late stage experimental drugs in phase two and phase three trials. That means that we now can predict what a drug will do in many different cancer contexts. And now we're doing it for diabetes, with uh, the mimochili. we're doing it for COVID. Uh, We're doing it for many other diseases that are not cancer related. So uh, ranging from uh, reprogramming cells to different states, which is very important in regenerative medicine. To, to treating cancer
0: patients, to treating uh, patients with other disease. So maybe we can cover that for a second. And that's where I was going back earlier. You've talked a lot about the the tools and the and the basic understanding. If if someone listening to this is, is a is a, a patient yeah. has has cancer has diabetes, yeah. what does all this explosion of knowledge mean from their perspective? Like what can happen? You mentioned going from a hundred and fifty dollar price tag to an eleven dollar price tag for, but but. Practically speaking, what does this allow you to do that we couldn't do 20 years ago? Right.
1: So, for instance, one example of what we can do today, um, which have just completed the study that is now on on BioArchive and is is going to be sending out for review very soon, um, is the fact that we can use the model of how all all these mechanisms inside the cells work and process the information, because in in the end, the cell is just a microprocessor, it's just processing information and and making some, some decisions to actually understand very precisely what drugs do to cells, okay? And so if I have a cell, there's been tremendous impetus for trying to figure out that if cancer is, a, is generated by a specific mutation, maybe I can find that cancer with a drug that targets that mutation, okay? That has really worked for three, four, five different cancer types. Well, most cancer will actually, if you use that approach, will relapse. Why do they relapse? Because the tumor, about two billion cells when you detect it and every one of those cells has a different set of mutation because once you break down what's called a tumor suppressor they start to accumulate mutations and so what happens is that the number of patterns of genetic alteration that can give you cancer is larger than the atoms number of atoms in the universe so what does that and that's a very large number yeah and so what that means is that you can't really try to fight cancer by counting the mutation and trying to target one at a time because the cell will always find a way to escape that. And so what we've been trying to do is to find more universal dependencies, and and we call them bottlenecks. Essentially, what we've shown is that all the mutations are upstream of a very small number of proteins, and these proteins are the ones that basically run the show. So when when we actually, in the genome center, process all the FDA-approved drugs, all the investigational compounds, and we put them in cell and measure their RNA, we can actually ask the question, what do those drugs do to those proteins, mm. right? And we can find drugs that invert the activity of those proteins, and we're now just shown, we get a 90% success rate in tumor that are transplanted from a patient to a mouse model from patients that have failed three to seven lines of therapy, okay? So meaning that it, it, this really works significantly better than, than targeting individual mutation because it's a much more universal mechanism, in fact, it, it, it this was in cancer that are in eighteen different types of cancer, right? mm. so so we started for instance we just run a clinical. Now the problem is that how do you bring that to the patient? Right. The way you bring this to the patient, and and you have to be very careful about not creating you know some kind of hyper uh, uh, you know uh, excitement in, in just saying oh there's a new technology on the horizon my cancer will be cured there's a very structural way in which you bring this thing to the patient. And this is two clinical trials. And so, clinical trials are, are complex, they're costly, they take time. And so what we've now done, we basically have about 10 clinical trials that have started based on this technology um, and many others that we're starting with collaborating pharmaceutical companies um, where we're basically gen- taking hypotheses that are generating by this methodology, by these systems, biology approaches. We are predicting which drug would work in a particular type of patient, and then we're testing. For instance, the first trial was just concluded at a 100% success rate, meaning that we have predicted a patient that had a barren activity of a particular protein called HTAC6, which is not relevant, would respond to a drug called recolinostan. And the results of the trial show that 100% of the patients wow. that had the higher activity responded to the drug. 100% of the ones that didn't
0: have the higher activity did not respond. So does the way that work in clinical practice, does that mean if a patient shows up at the hospital, and like, are are you? Would this be sort of a one to one? Each new patient would get tested for the underlying mechanisms for their particular tumor types, and then you'd have sort of an existing library mapping the tumor types to a drug, or are you redoing this on each new patient? No, that would come in. So the way it works, it, it will never be clinically feasible to select
1: drugs from a, an open-ended repertoire mm-hmm. because you simply you, know, you have to do clinical trials. So what we do is we've shown that when you use this type of approaches, you can take a large cohort, for instance, you know, say triple negative breast cancer, and you can stratify it into only seven subtypes. And these patients are sensitive to exactly the same drug, are predicted to be sensitive to the same drugs. We now validated those drugs in mouse models from those patients. And so we know that at least some of the drugs are likely to work. So now you can open up what's called a basket trial, where the patient comes in, Their their RNA is analyzed, RNA from their tumor is analyzed, and depending on the analysis, it can be put on one of the seven basket Mm. with the corresponding drugs. Some of the basket, we may not even have drugs that are ready to be put in humans, and so it may be that out of the seven basket, we only treat patients that are in three of them, okay? But at least it's a a hypothesis for me. So we have a a, a trial like that, that just started at Columbia in pancreatic cancer called Hippocrates. This is a collaboration between Ken, Ken Olive's lab and my lab, um, and I think uh, 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 Gulam uh, Manju is, uh, is, is running uh, some of it, uh, where patients come in uh, and, and, and initially they are profiled and also transplanted into a mouse model and we also sequence their single cells. So we see the heterogeneity of the tumor. And then from that data, six months later when the patient will relapse, we will already know what drug is most likely to work. Mm. Okay, and this will have to be selected from a relatively small repertoire of drugs, which we are now increasing on a daily basis as new patients come in. But at least that gives us a little bit of time because of the six months interval that you have between the first resection and, and a potential relapse, you can work with pharmaceutical companies to bring
0: additional agents to the to the, to the, to the plane. That's amazing. And sorry, for the layperson, is this something, is your approach, is this something that many labs around the world are working on and you're taking a Sort of different approach to doing it, or is this like a, a a radical change to the to the sort of current standards of care or current standards of research?
1: So there are many labs around the world that are trying to figure out how to predict whether a drug will work in a patient. For instance, there was a recent paper by Trey Inuker that showed that use a, a deep learning algorithm to actually uh, to actually predict which drug works. In that case, it was from a very small set of drugs, and I think there were four or five drugs that it was selecting. Um, and uh, um, and uh, it was not done in a large enough set to be able to say that it was statistically significant. It was essentially some antibiotic result. So what, what is unique about our lab is that this is the only lab in the world that works on the basis of targeting this subset of proteins that we call master regulators, which are the ones that basically maintain the tumor state. These are the, the generals that command mm. the troops to uh, to, uh, uh, to do certain things. And they represent what I told you before, the bottleneck between the mutations and the state of the cell. So the cell has a state that is very well defined. It's defined by its RNA, not by its DNA. DNA, for instance, all of our cells have exactly the same DNA, but they do very different things. And so the DNA is static. The RNA defines what the cell is actually doing. So the RNA can distinguish between a liver cell and the brain cell, right? In, in, in the context of cancer the RNA can tell you in, in this case we can we can ask the question what is the what are the proteins that maintain that pattern of RNA expression instead of asking what are the, the what are the RNAs we ask who is maintaining the RNAs and so it's, it's a little bit like the RNA being the, the troops and these proteins being the generals that command the troops mm. And so when you shut down these generals uh, which we can find only through the algorithm that we have that we have uh, um, developed and also patented, uh, you basically
0: get access to a completely novel way of thinking about the problem. Got it. So you mentioned patents, and I know that you've been involved in the practical applications, the applied applications, the, the commercial launches of, of your work for a long time, even before you came to Columbia, which I'll come back to in a minute. But um, the, the startup that I'm most familiar with is the one you've launched fairly recently, um, Darwin Health. And my understanding is that Darwin Health, in some ways, is trying to bring to life many of the things that we've been talking about. So maybe explain a little bit about what Darwin Health does and, and sort of what the fundamental idea that, that came from and how the company's doing. Yeah. So, so Darwin Health is,
1: if you want, becoming the practical arm, uh, the, 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 the patient and industry reaching arm of what the lab has been doing over the last 20 years. Um, and, and the reason for that is that in an academic environment, we, we are, there, there are certain limitations uh, that are dictated by our conflict of interest and by other type of restrictions that we have, for instance, on not being able to do work that you know, includes our, our, our students and postdocs uh, for commercial purposes without you know, having the rights to publish, et cetera, which may prevent certain type of collaboration. So when you want to take the hypotheses that are generated by our algorithms and bring them to the clinic, one of the best way to do that is to collaborate with pharmaceutical companies because we don't have the wherewithal to do it here at Columbia on, on our own time. And so what what Darwin is basically doing is, is creating this buffer between what we do in the lab, which is for pure research purposes, and what that translation to the clinics can actually bring forward. Right? And so the the value is that there's been this tremendous impetus in going after drugs that are targeting essentially three mechanisms. One is DNA uh, uh, damage repair and, 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 and this entire class of drugs that are essentially damaging the cells that are replicating faster and that have defect in, in DNA damage repair uh, more than our normal cells in our body, okay? And huge area of investigation. In fact, probably most of the drugs that actually work are in that, in that space. Uh, you know, for instance, testicular cancer almost 100% cure rate is because of this type of, of, of agents. The second one has been in targeted therapy, which is basically, say, based on the concept that was actually developed here at Columbia by Weinstein in 2000 in a science science paper, oncogene addiction, says if you have a mutation in 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 an oncogene, then if you find a drug that actually can inhibit that, that, the corresponding oncoprotein, then you will will kill the tumor cell, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And the third one is immunotherapy, which is now on on a rampage, great The problem with both targeted therapy and immunotherapy is that, they don't work for most patients with cancer. For for targeted therapy, most patients don't have mutations in oncoproteins that are that we know how to drug. For immunotherapy, most patients actually do not respond. To it. They have what they call a cold tumor that doesn't respond to immunotherapy. So eventually, we'll figure out how to turn the cold tumors into hot. But right now, uh, I would say that maybe you know 10% of the patients may receive benefit from uh, from targeted therapy, and another 10% of the patient from immunotherapy. Um, the almost all of them will eventually relapse if they have an aggressive tumor. So if the tumor is not taken away by surgery or by uh, one of these uh, hemotoxic agents, mm. it's probably likely to, to, to relapse at some point. There are exceptional, of course. So what we're trying to do is to completely change the paradigm, create a new theory of cancer if you want. And basically that instead of targeting these proteins that are mutated, we want to target the protein that integrate the effect of the mutations. So think of it as a, as a colander or think of it as an as a hourglass model. So the individual grain of sands in the in, in the hourglass are all the genes and some of them are bad, some of them are, are good, some of them are mutated, some of them are not. But they all have to go through that little hole mm-hmm. to go in the bottom part. Okay, And so if you put a if you put a filter on that little hole that says, oh, this is what I need to stop in order to prevent the bad sand to go down, now it's a much easier a uh, uh, sort of conceptual uh, task that if you have to go through the billion grains of salt that you have on top and figure out which one is bad and which one is good, right? And figure out how to target them individually. So we, we're targeting these bottlenecks and by targeting these bottlenecks, all of a sudden many pharmaceutical companies got super excited because, as I said, they have experienced firsthand the, some of the failures of, of targeted therapy or the inability to bring it forward in, in some areas. and so. Um, You know, an example would be BMS, for instance, that that has now been extremely excited about using their uh, compounds that essentially degrade proteins to actually target this new class of, what's called the non-oncogene addictions in cancer, non-oncogene dependencies Mm. of the cancer cell. Uh, And that becomes really a novel way to go after cancer. Will it work in general? We don't know yet, but certainly the, the initial results that we're getting from these first clinical trials, et cetera, are
0: very encouraging. So, your role in your interactions with Bruce Wells, Bruce Square, BMS, mm-hmm. um, what is Darwin, like a, a, a typical engagement for Darwin with a pharma company might look like what, like what, how does that relationship work? So,
1: typically what has happened is that they, um, they see the papers that we publish from, from the lab and they're excited about the concept and, or uh, we start working with a company, first in this case, was Celgene and then Celgene got, got acquired by Visual right. So it grew up to a entire new, uh, new level of, of, of interactions. Um, and so they, they basically ask us to come there and, and give a presentation. So we do, you know, essentially tell them what we've been able to do, including in immunity, including in, uh, in, in, in targeting these master regulators, et cetera. And then sort of the relationship starts and we start basically putting together a project. So depending on the type of company, for say with Daichi the Sanhio, they had, you know, repertoire about 37 compounds, including the Plexicon compound because they, they bought Plexicon where they wanted to know what tumors should we actually target with these compounds. So you have you know, you have like 40 different tumor types and maybe 120 subtypes, uh, and knowing in which subtypes you're likely to have an optimal response is critical, right? So most of the people start from the opposite way. They say, oh, I have this specific tumors, I think that this is a dependency, therefore I'm gonna develop a drug for that dependency. Now you have a drug, maybe the drug is gonna work in other 30 tumor types. You don't know which one. And so a lot of the things that we do are actually about telling companies which tumors they should target. So sort of finding nails for hammers, in a the sense. Right. They've they already got the hammers. They got the hammers. Finding the, the round holes for the for the round pegs, right. right? For the square pegs, right? Um, and and that's a typical uh, engagement that we do. The other one that we do is to just generate completely novel targets. So we have a you know a technology called CDNI that. Uh, Cancer target, uh, cancer new target discovery, and I remember the exact acronym, um, where we basically can list and identify and then validate experimentally the master regulators. They typically validate at a 30 to 40 percent rate in terms of being dependencies of the tumor. And then we either target those proteins, for instance, using degroans, or we target the proteins that control them that, that are the most closely related. So we call them master regulator upstream modulators. So think of it as a kinase that phosphorylates the master regulator, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm using te- terms of- I mean, I did not understand, that, but it's very it they're very difficult, yeah. <laughs> but basically think of it as, there's a protein that actually does something to the master regulators. So if you block this protein mm. A, the master regulator B will stop working, Got okay? It. And you wanna choose the protein that is the closest, the one that is most directly interacting with the master regulator, so that you have the most likely, uh, you, you can avoid the, the cell finding solution that will go around it. And so this, this, uh, this approach is now, you know, we're pursuing with several companies. Uh, it's basically providing them with targets that they can then develop drugs.
0: So does that get you, does that take Darwin, it sounds like in some ways this is taking Darwin from a model where you are helping drug companies figure out what to do with their own compounds, and now you're in a mode of helping companies figure out what new compounds to, to go after. both of them. And does that bring Darwin into almost becoming a therapeutics company itself at some point? Yeah, so, so one of the things that we can do right
1: now, uh, and there are gonna be multiple steps, of course, but there is an enormous number of drugs, we're talking about it's close to 2,000 drugs, that have been successfully going through phase one trials. Phase one trials are for toxicity mostly, right? So of course you wanna see a little signal, but if you see you know, one or two patients responding out of say 20 in a, in a phase one trial, you probably will try to move that drug. Now, there are phase one trials where the drug was very, very atoxic, uh, and yet there was no signal. Or well, there, there, there are drugs that have gone to phase one, to phase two, and in phase two, they fail, right? That's a huge repertoire of drugs that could actually, that, that in our opinion, have application, is just that you have to find that square hole or round hole for the square peg or round peg. And so one of the things that we're doing right now is we are analyzing for, for ourselves about 2,000 different compounds that are in that stage where we could potentially in-license them and, and use them as our own IP if we figure out in which tumors they may be mm. most effective, right? And we've already done this for a number of compounds. For instance, just scientifically, we just reported uh, 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 that a, uh, uh, an anti elementic compound is actually extremely effective in in, uh, in differentiating stem cells in breast cancer so that uh, the stem cell become differentiated and now you can kill them with a classic cancer drug called paclitaxel. So when you combine together these two drugs, you have striking synergy where the, the mm. anti-alminting by itself does absolutely nothing to the tumor cell. That's really interesting. And so these are the kind of things that would allow us to, be, to to bring a little repertoire of say three, four compounds that would then be in development. Then of course the next stage will be that once that we're successful
0: in implementing that, that strategy is to actually start developing drug for our own targets, right? Right. It, you know what I found so fascinating about your experience with Darwin, and I'm sure it looks easier from the outside than it was in reality. But, but, but the you know the typical academic startup is years of work in the lab, and then a backbreaking period of years where you're trying to figure out how, how to start the company, and. I'll and, leverage your
1: rest next
0: round of funding. Well, exactly? And how, how do you, you know, we, we only need to raise 4 million or 8 million or 12 million to figure out if this even works. And then we'll need another 20 million to get this to, closer to the clinic. And and by that and you're bringing in all the VC firms and, and both for guidance but primarily for money. Um, and it's, you know, it's 8 10 years later before you know this is going to be a success. Your experience has been quite different from that. So you've raised no venture funding for this. We raised private funding, and
1: the, uh, the the private funding that was provided to the company is already been completely paid back. Uh, so, uh, and, and the company has been profitable since month number six. Uh, <laughs> so we are, the first six months we were losing money, and, and, and basically as soon as we started having this collaboration, we started having uh, uh, started being profitable, so right. we, we never had to do a round of, fi- of financing. We, we and this allows us to work with tremendous the uh, uh, peace of mind because I've, I've noticed and especially in the other companies that I started, which had the opposite problem with the one that you just described. Um, we the, the company was constantly in 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 uh, defensive mode to try and figure out how to survive the next six months, right? Yeah and having the luxury of not having to worry about that. So right now, just with the money that we have inside the company, we could stay alive for five years without having any additional you know, contract. So that, that gives you a, 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 the ability to do things that otherwise would be impossible to even think about. Um, why, why was that the case? Well, because I've learned from my P PRASTA experience that you don't want to give away the company um, through the typical round of funding in Series A, if you can, if you can of course. Um, And you have to really leverage, so starting companies, it's extremely efficient when you do it computationally. So to this day, we only have, you know, an organic of maybe seven employees at at, at Darwin, and and they're more than sufficient to run all of our collaboration. But what is extremely expensive is the experimental component, okay? And in fact, that's what broke the back of the previous company that I had. So what we've decided to do is a model where we outsource all of our experimental biology to, companies that we trust that we essentially built a relationship with and we pass through those costs. So that, you know, let's say that we have a slow month, we don't pay, you know, to maintain a lab that is not operational, and we have a fast month, we can actually outsource a lot more than we could even with our own capabilities. And and so the important thing has been really to develop this collaboration with, uh, you know, centers that can do mouse studies, centers that can do uh, drug perturbation studies, et cetera, including some of them are at Columbia here, of course. Uh, in a way that is completely protecting the, the interaction from my like, conflict of interest. Um, and, and so this has given us the opportunity to go after a model that is extremely cost-effective.
0: Yeah. That's amazing. And so, so when I think about your, your like the funder, so your work here at Columbia is funded by the sort of NIH, NIH primarily? NIH and, and some philanthropy, okay. uh, a lot of foundations. So, I mean, they must be thrilled to see that the work is being put into practice and, and having these impacts so quickly.
1: They're excited. I mean, I would say that there are there are probably three labs that I know of in the systems biology lab that actually have had a clinic an impact on the clinics. And so, the ability to finally move what has been a very fast pacing discipline to the clinic and seeing the kind of results that we're seeing uh, has been has been very exciting for them because they always have to justify it to the council and have to say why are we investing in this discipline. And if you remember for genetics, it was the same thing, you know, they say, why do we need to sequence all this gene and spend $2 billion for the human genome? What's the return? And then finally it took about 20 years for that to be shown and, 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 and see the relevance of that. And here, you know, in, in uh, you know, even less than that, we're
0: seeing an impact uh, on, on patients. Right. You launched a bunch of startups now. How do you think the environment at Columbia uh, is for faculty entrepreneurs? That's a great question, Oren. Uh, so I arrived at Columbia in 2003, and
1: um, I actually spent quite a number of years working with a, a, an organization called Amdec in New York that was trying to promote um, biotechnology. In new York it was essentially a desert in terms of biotechnology development in, in, that, in that period. Um, and we were struggling to figure out how to incentivize people to create new startups, et cetera. Um, it has been rough going, and I think when you compare, for instance, New York at that time, with the Bay Area or, or, or Boston, um, it was quite dramatic uh, comparison. This has changed in unbelievable ways in the last five years. And so and I, I think actually much uh, due to you and Ofra uh, oh, uh, Weinberger really creating a vision for how this should be uh, developed at uh, Columbia. And so what, what I, um, even though we were actually among maybe the, the companies that went through the learning period for this there was first of all tremendous help from you guys in terms of giving us um, models that we could use to raise funds potentially go after additional uh, money at the time when we didn't know whether we were going to need it or not uh, putting us in touch with angel investors and and, and, and potential venture companies that may be interested Uh, but also i I think giving us advice on how to successfully develop a company and 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 this especially for i see many of my colleagues so I've, I've created four, so I have a little bit of, a, of, 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 right. a, of, of, of background, but, um, but mo- many of my colleagues, are I would say, you know, I don't want to use the, the term naive in, in, in a bad way, but simply not have been exposed to how hard it is to actually make a startup work yeah. and be successful. Uh, and in fact, I failed three of them before being successful with Darwin. I think I, I, I know that directly on my skin. So, so what, what is really amazing now is that you have a template that can be used in a way that is completely essentially uh, equivalent for all the companies that are formed. It's a fair template, which is sometimes only the result of very strong negotiation that can create even tension between the founders and, and the institution. Um, the fact that this is a universalized basically create a situation where nobody's treated you know in a in a, an inequitous way. Uh, and 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 I think the the, the vision person instance that Ofra presented the other day uh, the chair's meeting was spectacular in terms of how Colombia has been able to leverage its IP and, and create revenues for the institution that simply didn't exist before. No, when I arrived, there was one patent, it was the, uh, the, the the patent on transfection, uh, the axle patent, so uh, right? The, yeah. the, the, the the axle patent, uh, which is like the Wiggler axle, yeah. S- Sam Silverstein patent, uh, and and that was basically generating out of sixty million dollars a
0: year, and that was it. Uh, and then the next one down was like you know, and now we have a portfolio that is just uh, you know one of the best in. in it's industry. been amazing. We've had uh, this year alone. There's been um, three exits and two IPOs, right. just just in two thousand twenty one. It's been crazy. By the way, I would say there's absolutely no shaming failing. You know, as I said,
1: you know these these companies are created because they bring forward ideas that are very exciting, groundbreaking, etc. You know, nine out of ten will fail. So there's no shaming failing, and it's actually a learning experience. Failure simply means that you have to try again, maybe even with the same technology, but reorganize in a way that is more appealing, etc. So I think that the it is very important for an institution like Columbia to actually generate a lot of these all mm. uh, these
0: opportunities because through the failures you learn, and and through the successes you learn. Right, Dr. Calafano, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. I appreciate it anytime.